go ahead and open up your Bibles. We're going to be in Numbers 18. Um, just because of our delay tonight, I'm not going to do uh, Numbers 18 through 28. I'm just going to do 18 and 19. So, <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah. Let you out of here sometime. So Sunday, I, I joked that we had left the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for the past three weeks while I was on vacation. And some say, hey, it wasn't three weeks, Rick. It was 38 years. To which I respond, nope. Oh, oh okay, it was 40 years. Nope. Brothers and sisters, they never wandered for a second. They were never lost in the wilderness. They never drifted aimlessly. They weren't tramps and vagabonds milling about, drifting uselessly through the desert because God didn't dump them even in their rebellion. He never left them. Every step, though they may not have always known why or how or even where, every step was purposeful by God. So, Let's just dispense with that misnomer right now. The Israelites never wandered in the wilderness. And in Jesus, you don't either. We don't always know where we're going. We don't always know what the next day is going to bring. We don't always know how or why. But we never wander aimlessly or drift uselessly when we follow Jesus. He leads us intentionally. Now, the last time we were in Numbers, we saw what... Uh, what I called the great reset. You know, after rebellion at Kadesh Barnea, that the, the people um, that rebelled against God, God said, you know, I'm starting over. I'm, gonna re- I'm hitting the reset button. We're gonna go to the next generation. This generation's not gonna make it into the promised land. The next one will. And they rebelled again with Korah. And, and, and it's just amazing to watch one rebellion after another. It's almost like as human beings, we can't help it. You know, we just have to rebel. It's called a sin nature. And we see it in Israel, and we see it in our own lives, and yet, praise God, he doesn't give up. And he didn't on Israel, and he won't on you. You keep turning back to him. You fall down on your face. You get back up. You keep following Jesus because he is true, and he is solid. But the Lord, the Lord knew the people needed some leadership. They needed to know who was in charge. They were rebelling against Aaron. They were saying, why should he be the leader? Who picked him? And God wanted to make it clear. So you may recall in chapter 17, the Lord called for each of 12 leaders to bring their staff, their rod, a symbol of their authority. Bring it to Moses. And he laid all 12 of the rods down, and then he took Aaron's rod and put it, put it among them, And to prove the power of God and the authority of God and who God had called, the next morning, literally overnight, Aaron's rod sprouted into an almond joy. It was suddenly an almond branch, that dead dry stick. Remember the supernatural miracle? It transformed overnight into a living almond branch with simultaneous, mind you, buds and blossoms and fruit. And there was no denying that the supernatural hand of God was on this man, on Aaron, and on the Aaronite priesthood. And the reason why the staff, the rod was chosen, was to prove this is the one who's got the authority. 
The authority of God, the authority of Yahweh rests on the owner of this rod and it was Aaron. So they had a rod now to lead them through the wilderness. It's a precious picture as we talked about of the resurrected Jesus who is also our rod and our staff that comforts us. He is both shepherd and rod. He is the leader through our wilderness. As Isaiah prophesied, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. What kind of fruit? Almond fruit. It's the almond rod that budded. Isaiah 11, verse 10, and the nations ultimately will resort, will come back to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. So fellow followers of Jesus, remember this. As we follow through the stories, the ancient stories of Israel in the wilderness, and we consider our own wilderness wandering, so to speak, we are never wandering blind or aimless. He is leading us through. He is the one. Now, beyond comfort, comfort and encouragement, I wanna ask you tonight, how does that make you want to respond? Knowing he's gonna get you through. So knowing that's a done deal. Salvation in Jesus Christ, you trust in Jesus, he will see you through. That's his promise to you. What does that make you wanna do? See, this is sometimes where we get bogged down as we keep thinking about what we have to do to be saved rather than how we get to respond to our salvation. And in responding to salvation, what does that do to your heart? Because you have to remember, we're not just a people being led through difficult wilderness times. We are a priesthood being prepared to take our place in the kingdom. That's what this is all about. So as chapter 18 now opens up, the Lord is gonna turn his full attention to the Aaronite priesthood. He's proven the authority, chapter 17, with the rod that budded and blossomed and fruited, and now he's gonna talk directly to the Aaronite priests. Chapter 18, verse one, so the Lord said to Aaron, and note that he's talking directly to Aaron, which is incredibly rare. He will talk to Moses and Aaron, or he will talk through Moses to Aaron, but it's only a couple of times that he ever just talks to Aaron. In fact, it's here, and it's back on ordination day when Aaron's sons got fired, if you remember the story. Leviticus chapter 10 And at that moment, God speaks directly to Aaron to help him hold fast in that tragedy, knowing exactly what's going on with his father's heart. Well, here, he speaks to Aaron again. So the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons and your father's household with you shall bear the guilt. In connection with the sanctuary, that's the tabernacle, and you and your sons with you shall bear the guilt in connection with your priesthood. Interesting phrasing there. But bring with you also your brothers, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may be joined with you and serve you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of the testimony. So remember we talked about this. The Levitical priests serve the outside of the tabernacle and the needs of the tabernacle. The Aaronite priests serve the inside of the tabernacle and all the offerings and sacrifices that are brought and keeping things up within. And so it says, they shall attend again, verse three, to your obligation and the obligation of all the tent, but they shall not come near to the furnishings of the sanctuary and the altar, or both they and you will die. This is serious business. You do it, my, it's my way or the highway, the Lord says. By the way, when you're out in the wilderness, ain't no highway. So it's my way if you want to see this through. Verse four, they shall be joined with you and attend to the obligations of the tent of meeting for all the service of the tent. But an outsider 
may not come near you. So you shall attend to the obligations of the sanctuary and the obligations of the altar. See, obligations are not a bad thing with God. Yes, he has expectations for us, expectations of righteousness, expectations that we would desire goodness and follow after him and do his will. So you attend to the obligations for all the service of the tent, but an outsider may not come near you. Again, verse five, you shall attend to the obligations. He says at the latter part of the verse, so that there will no longer be wrath on the sons of Israel. Your role, priesthood of Aaron, is to keep the people from wrath to stand in the midst, to to stand in the gap, as it were, to mediate for the people. Behold, I myself, verse six, have taken your fellow Levites from among the sons of Israel. They're a gift to you, dedicated to the Lord to perform the service for the tent of meeting. But you and your sons with you shall attend to your priesthood for everything concerning the altar and inside the veil, and you are to perform service. I am giving you the priesthood as a bestowed service, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. A bestowed service. Note this, it's abodah matanah. Abodah matanah in the Hebrew, a bestowed service, or we could translate it a gifted service, or a, a gift of service. I really like the phrase, please understand, because this has immediate relevance to us, that their service to the Lord was a gift from the Lord. Not a hardship, not a bummer, not a drag, not an imposition. It was a gift. You get to serve. You get to be my priests. Royal priesthood, do you hear that? You get to serve the Lord. You never have to. You always get to. It's a blessing. It's a gift from the Father. That's always the case with God. Whatever service we render to him is in reality a gift from him. And when I view it that way, when I understand it that way, suddenly my service to the Lord is a joy. It's a blessing. I get to do this. But when I think it's, you know, it's a command, it's a law, it's a requirement, I I miss the joy. I, I, I may still do the work. There are an awful lot of heavily legalistic followers of Jesus out there who aren't having any fun at all. Truly, church is difficult. And it's a burden and it's a weight and they're missing the joy. Do you realize how many of our fellow believers are gonna be in the kingdom going, it could have been like this all along? You mean I could have enjoyed, my whole entire life was a drudgery for Jesus. And I could have enjoyed it? Yes. It's a gift. Your service is a gift. I love the way Wayne Taylor put it on Sunday. We don't work for salvation. That's done. But we can work for the Lord. That's a great way to understand it. We don't work for salvation. He's got that, but we work for him. We serve him. It's a gift. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So it's a joy. It's a gift. When you serve the Lord, that's how we view it. That's how to understand it. But wait. In this context, in this passage, if I told you, I got this, Andy, I got a special gift for you, bro. And here it is. I'm gonna lay it on you. I am giving you the gift of guilt. It's all yours, man. None of us are gonna keep it. You get to carry that for the fellowship. All our gift, all our guilt, all of our stuff, we're gonna give it to Andy. So start, we're, what's your email address? 
No, we'll stop there. You know what he says? Listen to verse one again. He says, you and your sons and your father's household with you shall bear the guilt in connection with the sanctuary. And you and your sons with you shall bear the guilt in connection with your priesthood. I'm giving it to you as a gift. The gift of guilt? That just that doesn't sound right. You get to bear the guilt. What do you mean? To bring it, to carry it, to present the sin offering, the guilt offering. You get to take what is guilt and shame on the backs of the people and bring it to the Lord so it can be removed from the congregation. You bear the guilt. Bring it to Jesus. But I can promise you this, there's still a weight to it. Though we are bearing the guilt, though we bring in confession, in repentance, we bring our guilt to him, we lay it before him so it can be wiped clean from us, we still, you know, we still carry it there for a bit. There's still that weight, that heaviness. So in essence, he's saying to the Aaronite priesthood, your gift is to shoulder the weight of the sins of Israel. But what a gift. What a blessing. See, this is what the priest does. He takes that guilt and he offers it up in sacrifice. And he functions as a mediator praying to the Lord. And he stands before God to mitigate the wrath of God for sin against the people, at least in the interim. Now, see, we can look back and we understand something. The New Testament is very clear about this, that God in his forbearance passed over the sins previously committed. Remember that? In other words, the entire priestly ministry was a holding back of the wave of wrath. God said, I want you to do this. And as you do this, I will withhold my wrath, my judgment on my people until redemption comes. Again, we're looking back. So until Jesus come, that was the plan for mitigating, if you will, the wrath of God. And the priest gets to do that. But the Hebrew pastor tells us, Hebrews 10, 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. It's their gift. It's their get to. They do this for the people. And truly, what we do for others does become a gift for us, doesn't it? It really does. When you serve others and you see others blessed by your service, man, that, that gifts a heart like nothing. It's like Christmas as a child versus Christmas as the parent. As a child, you're talking about, what am I getting? As the parent, you're, you're enjoying their reception. And so the priests are doing that, but the Hebrew pastor says what they did every day, time after time, the same sacrifices, can never take away sins. Could only hold it off for a season. But Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Listen, to to bear the guilt before the Lord is to be Christ-like. This was a precursor. The Aaronite priesthood had a Christ-like quality to them. I'm not saying they were Jesus, and I'm not saying they had the redemptive power. They didn't. But they had a Christ-like quality in that they brought the guilt before the Lord. They, they bore that guilt, and they held off. God worked through them to hold off the wrath. But Jesus comes along, and, and he does it. He's priest and he's lamb, right? He's priest and sacrifice. And once for all time. So when we bear the guilt before the Lord, and stay with me on this, we're Christ-like. See, our great high priest of the eternal order, remember, he's of a different order, not the Aaronite, 
But you Bible students, the Melchizedekian, Hebrews chapter seven, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go read Hebrews chapter seven. And then you probably still won't know what I'm talking about, so come talk to me. But he's of the eternal order that was pre-Aaron, pre-law. That's Jesus. And his priesthood is forever. The high priest of Israel, it was interim mediation. But Jesus comes, he provides the full satisfaction of God's righteous requirements by his own blood. And you know what he does for us? He gives us grace. He gifts us with a ministry of reconciliation. And yet we can still bear the guilt. Wait, what do you mean? Greatest gift mankind has ever received, ever, is the grace of God. Anyone want to argue that point? The pure grace of being saved and not of ourselves. That's the gift, greatest gift we've ever gotten. For of all his fullness, John 1, 16 tells us, we have all received and grace upon grace, which is one of my favorite verses because it means I never run out of grace from Jesus. It's always there. It's always continual. But I can still bear the guilt because every time I share the gospel, I am, I am sharing the gift of grace as a royal priest. But also every time I love someone through and out of their sin, I bear the guilt with them. This is something I, I, I'm, I'm still trying to comprehend. Perhaps you are as well. To love someone in their sin and to walk with them out of their sin. To labor with them over the pain that their sin is causing them, you feel it too. Now are you starting to get it? You feel the weight of someone else's sin, a son, a daughter, a friend, a mother, a father, a sister, or a brother. You feel the, you feel the burden. And we have two choices with that. We can say, I don't, I'm not gonna carry that weight. That's not mine. We can ignore it and let them burn. Or we can bear the guilt before the Lord. We can bear the guilt. We can help them carry the burden before God. We do it in laboring in prayer, in intercession. We do it in continually bringing Jesus to them, though they get angry with us. We're not gonna stop because we love them too much. We'll bear that with them. We'll bear their guilt. We bring it before the Lord. Paul put it this way, Galatians 6, verse 1, Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? It's even more. Jake, you're right. Love your neighbor as yourself. Actually, the law of Christ is love each other as I have loved you. That's the new law. This is not the old love. This is not love to the best of your ability. This is love like I did. Well, how did Jesus love? Right to the cross. He bore our guilt to the cross. And he calls us as a royal priesthood to follow after him. Take up our cross and follow him. That's, the implications of that are huge. But am I willing to bear the guilt of my sinful friend or relative to walk with them and to, and to carry that weight and to, even if it brings me to tears, even if I have to weep over it, even if it's painful for me to watch them in that mess, I don't detach, I continue to walk and pray for and be with them to bring them to Jesus. And if it's a brother or sister in the fellowship that you know is sinning, don't cut them off. 
you go bear the guilt. You bear one another's burdens. And in so doing, we love the way Jesus did. But watch this, verse eight. Now the Lord spoke to Aaron, still just speaking to Aaron. Now behold, I myself have given you charge of my offerings. Even all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, I've given them to you as a portion and to your sons as a perpetual allotment. He continues, says, this shall be yours from the most holy gifts reserved from the fire. Every offering of theirs, even every grain offering and every sin offering and every guilt offering which they shall render to me shall be most holy, note this, for you and for your sons. As the most holy gifts, you shall eat it. Every male shall eat it. It shall be holy to you. Do we have something like that? Do we have something where we get to eat of the offering? See, remember, we only have one offering. We don't have five different offerings like Israel did. We have one. His name is Jesus. One sacrifice. Do we eat of that? We have the same idea in communion. Every time we share the bread, every time we share the wine, the representation of body and blood, we share in the sin offering of Jesus. So we're a royal priesthood, and like the priesthood before us, we are allowed to dine on the offering and to be drawn near to the offering. Verse 11, this is also yours, the offering of their gift. Even all the wave offerings to the sons of Israel, I've given them to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. Every one of your household who is clean may eat it. Verse 12, all the best of the fresh oil and the best of the fresh wine. And if you've ever had fresh oil, especially in Israel, oh my, my. There's no better dipping for your bread than fresh oil in Israel. I've given it to you, he says, and the first fruits of those, and of the grain and the first fruits of those which they give to the Lord, I give them to you. You ever ask the question? I'm sure you have because I have, and we've all thought it at some point. What does God need with my money, really? What does God need with anything that I have to offer him? He's God. God wants a hamburger. He'll make a hamburger. I'm not so lucky. I have to drive to California to get in and out. And I have way too much of that the last couple of weeks. God wants an in and out burger. He's got it. He doesn't need me to bring it to him. God needs something to be financed in the kingdom. He can take care of it. He doesn't need me to give, give to the kingdom, to give financially. And you know what's interesting? In holy generosity, God receives the gifts of the people and gives them to his servants. And it still applies today. Listen, sometimes we think our tithes and offerings are a sacrifice. <laughs> we have no idea. Our tithes and offerings, what we give to the Lord, my friends, they arouse his generosity to his servants. Think about it that way. Our giving arouses God's generosity. The more we give, the more we trust him. And I am talking about with, with tithes and offerings, the more we bring our gifts to the church, the more God says, wow, this is exciting. These people are generous. I feel like being generous. And the more he will bless in return. And it's not quid pro quo, uh-uh. It's grace upon grace. We can't even come close to scratching the surface of what he's given us. But as we give, God loves this. He gets excited about it. Verse 13, the first ripe fruits of all that is in their land, which they bring to the Lord, shall be yours. He's talking to Aaron and his family. 
everyone of your household who is clean may eat of it. Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Wow, all these offerings, all these gifts, all these tithes of the people of their land and their fruit and everything else, they bring it and God says, hey, thanks for bringing it to me. Here you go, Aaron. Here you go, family. Here you go, priesthood. It's for you. Don't you want a grape, Lord? Nah, I'm good. I want you to have it. And he gives generously. To who? Note this, to the clean person of the household. Anyone who's, everyone who's clean may eat of it. Wow. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, royal priesthood, you're already clean. So you can eat. And as we bring our offerings to God, he multiplies them. He does things we cannot imagine. And I can tell you, you know, and I, I know I reference this a lot, but 18 years now, roughly, into our fellowship, to watch how God has taken the simple, faithful giving of his people and multiplied it to, and I, you know, there are bigger churches, there, there are fellowships doing far more than we're doing, praise the Lord. But I remember when we had one missionary, and now we support 45. That's God multiplying beyond anything I would have imagined, you know, 18 years ago. We just, we just bring it, you know, our little, you know, our loaves, our fishes. And he just goes, let's, let's, let's make more out of this. It's how God works. It's how he functions. Michael Adelot's figuring that out right now. <laughs> but God loves to be generous, especially when his people are generous. Let me just read this to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it's written, Psalm 119, or 112, verse 9, he scattered abroad and he gave to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. And then referring, Paul does, to Ephesians 55, he says, now he who supplied seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything. Why? To store up in your barns, keep for yourselves and be incredibly selfish. I'm sorry, that's the sinner's translation of the scriptures. The actual translation is you will be enriched in everything for all liberality. In this area, my friends, be liberal. Be a liberal when it comes to your giving. Go far, go hard left in your giving and in your generosity because God loves that and he's gonna increase it. Because why? Because it produces in us thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Paul's talking to the church of Corinth, and he's saying, you would not believe the giving of your brothers and sisters. It's amazing. And people are thankful all over the place. And you can be part of that. Or not. If you don't want to be. If you want to just be legalistic and holding fast and, you know, grumpy about your faith. Or you can be joyful and generous and part of what God is doing. Well, Numbers 18, verse 15, continuing, every first issue of the womb of all flesh, whether man or animal, which they offer to the Lord shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn man, the firstborn of man, that is of mankind, you shall surely redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. 
And we talked about all that through Leviticus, so if it's confusing, just go back. But he says then, sorry, this thing's, I don't, can I just tell you, I wasn't gonna say anything, I'm gonna say something. I hate this thing. I am not Madonna. <laughs> anyway, it's just my one little grump. We'll let that go now. Where am I? Oh, verse 16, as to their redemption price from a month old, you shall redeem them by your valuation, five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 giras. You ever wonder where that money went? The redemption price. You're gonna pay five shekels of silver for your firstborn son and redeem him. You're not gonna sacrifice him. God does not do human sacrifice, which is one reason why abortion is completely out where God is concerned. He does not do human sacrifice. So they would pay a five shekel redemption price. Where's that money go? Guess what? It goes to Aaron and his sons. It's salary. It's pay for the priesthood, and five shekels of silver at the time was the equivalent of about six months' pay. This wasn't cheap, my friends. So the price of redemption became salary for the Aaronite priesthood. And it reminds me what Jesus said, Matthew 6, 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and what? All these things will be added to you as well. So you have a choice here. We all have a choice. You don't have to do that. You don't have to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. You can, you can seek first your portfolio. You can do that. You have that freedom. God's not gonna force that on you. But if you seek first his righteousness and his kingdom, he's got the rest. So he always leaves the choice unto us. We can, we can trust him and, and he'll bless or we can just do it ourselves. If you wanna do it that way, you have that option. Seek first the kingdom so much better. But wait, there, there's still more. Verse 17, but the firstborn of an ox or the firstborn of a sheep or the firstborn of a goat, you shall not redeem. They're holy. You shall sprinkle their blood on the altar and shall offer up their fat and smoke as an offering by fire for a soothing aroma, aroma to the Lord. But watch this, verse 18, their meat shall be yours. All right. It shall be yours like the breast of a wave offering or like the right thigh. I'm giving it to you. Verse 19, all the offerings of the holy gifts which the sons of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given to you and to your sons and your daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. It's an everlasting, note this, covenant of salt before the Lord to you and your descendants with you. A covenant of salt, salt, it means that it won't break down. Salt preserves Salt stays fresh. Salt doesn't break down. It doesn't go bad. Back in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, he said, every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall eat salt, or you shall offer salt. Why? To show that they're perpetual, to show that they're not gonna break down, to show that God keeps his covenant. 2 Chronicles 13, 5. Do you not know that the Lord, the God of Israel, gave the rule over Israel forever to David and to his sons? As is fast forward, he's talking about the Davidic covenant, and he says, by a covenant of salt. It's preserved. It, it, it stays fresh. Why? Romans eleven twenty nine. 29, for the gifts and the calling of God, they're irrevocable. Verse 20. Then the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portion among them. Well, after reading what they receive, what do they need? They get all the food, they get salary, they're taken care of, it's all good. And then God says, but you don't get a land inheritance. Ooh, that's kind of important, Lord. 
Yeah, got something better. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. I love that verse. It's the best gift of all. You can have land or you can have the Lord. And you know what? The Lord is the gift that keeps on giving. It's him. It's his company. It's his fellowship. Psalm 16, verse 5, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. It says, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. The word lines there is boundary lines or property lines. He's making a, a comparison that I've got, I've got great property. Why? Because the Lord is my portion. Indeed, he says, my heritage is beautiful to me. The psalmist is saying it's the Lord. What do I want land for? I gotta keep it up. I have two and a half acres. What a pain in the neck. Serious. And actually, I don't have, the bank has two and a half acres. I just live there. It's a pain. It's a hassle. It's a headache. I'm talking about downsizing, but God has us adopting more kids. So I don't know what we're gonna do. The Lord is my portion. You know, the greatest thing to me about the resurrection of Jesus is that we have him now. The Lord is my portion now. He's, he's present now. I can walk with him and talk with him and be with him. And that's not in the sweet by and by. That's in the difficult wilderness now. He's my portion. And he preserves me and he, he's there for me. And no matter how rough it gets or how difficult things are, I and instantaneously turn and there he is. You know the old saying, if God seems distant, guess who moved? See, because he never moves. He's there. Same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is with us always, he said, even to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. And that irrevocable promise stands. Not only is he here present tonight with you and going home with you and there in the morning as you wake and with you through the darkness of night. But he says, to the end of the age? And then guess what? 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, and we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The Lord is our portion. He's our inheritance. So marvelous. Verse 21, to the sons of Levi. So now he's shifting directions, not just the Aaronite priesthood, limited within Levi, but now he's turning to all the other sons of Levi. Behold, I've given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service, which they perform the service of the tent of meeting, the sons of Israel shall not come near the tent of meeting again or they will bear sin and die. Keep them back, boys. Only the Levites shall perform the service of the tent of meeting and they shall bear the iniquity, bear their iniquity. That is, they're gonna bring the sin. It shall be a perpetual state throughout your generations or statute and among the sons of Israel they shall have no inheritance for the tithe of the sons of Israel which they offer as an offering to the Lord I've given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I've said concerning them, they shall have no inheritance among the sons of Israel. God is taking care of his priests, taking care of the Aaronite priesthood and then the larger group of the Levites. I got you. I'm not putting you in land because God knew, you know what? When they got into the land, he knew they were all gonna need to be serving in Jerusalem. So they couldn't have their own spot. He needed them there, and as you're gonna see, he's gonna spread them out. They're, they're gonna have cities throughout the land of Israel, among all the tribes, to serve the people. That's what the priesthood does. That's what I love about Christianity is we're spread all, all over the earth. We're in every country. 
We're in every corner. You can't get rid of us. Just when you thought you snuffed out Christianity, there we are. We just keep showing up. I've said this many times. It's one of my favorite, you know, truisms. Christians are like manure. Spread us out and we fertilize and we do great work. Clump us together and we stink. So we're everywhere and we're all over the place. And that's, that's what the priests are gonna do. And so they don't have a land inheritance, but they're taken care of. And so as we've seen, the distinction, the distinction between the Aaronites and now the rest of the Levites, but he continues in verse 25, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, moreover, you shall speak to the Levites and say to them, when you take from the sons of Israel the tithe which I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present an offering from it to the Lord. And you might want to circle this one, a tithe of the tithe. They receive a tithe, but God says, and I expect you from the tithe of the Israelites that they give to you, I expect you to give a tithe. But, but, but we're priests, Lord. What? what? You're telling us that we get our income from them and then we have to give 10% of the income that we got from them, we got to give back? Uh-huh. Read on. Your offering shall be reckoned to you as the grain offering from the threshing floor or the full produce from the wine vat. That's what the Israelites are giving, right? So you shall also present an offering to the Lord from your tithes, which you receive from the sons of Israel, and from it you shall give the Lord's offering to Aaron the priest. Out of all your gifts, you shall present every offering due to the Lord from all the best of them. So you don't just tithe. You give the best of what you've gotten. You get an allotment of of meat, you have the best, the best choice steaks, and so on. He says, oh, I lost my place there. Out of the gifts, you shall prevent to the Lord best of them, the sacred part from them. Verse 30, you shall say to them, when you have offered from it the best of it, then the rest of it shall be reckoned to the Levites as the product of the threshing floor and as the product of the wine vat. You may eat it anywhere, you and your households, for it's your compensation in turn for your service in the tent of meeting. And you will bear no sin by reason of it when you have offered the best of it. But you shall not profane the sacred gifts of the sons of Israel or you will die. Get this. So the, the priests were given a tithe. They were to give a tithe of their tithe. So their income, they're provided for, they're given a tithe from all of Israel that comes in now to the priesthood and out of what they receive they have to give the first and best 10% of what they received. Question that I'm often asked, or I have been asked, I won't say often, but several times by fellow pastors over the years. Should salaried pastors tithe of their income? Now, for a long time, I didn't think so. But wait, the church gives me you know, my salary, and I'm supposed to take out of that and give it right back to the church? That makes no sense to me. Isn't that like just money crossing you know, it's, like, it's kind of like logging trucks. Have you ever thought about this? You ever see logging trucks pass each other on the road? That makes no sense. They have logs there, and they're bringing them there, but they have logs there, but they're bringing them. Why don't you just keep your own logs? I don't, that's Brian Regan first said that. I don't get that. And, and so the, I, and I had that, that tug of war, that mental tug of war as a, as a full-time salaried pastor to take now 10% of what the church gave me and give it back to the church. It's just going to come right back around. Why not just keep it? <laughs> Made sense to me. 
Psalm 76, verse 11 says, make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let all who are around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. Are you around the Lord? See, I, I had to think that one through. Let me get more personal. And by the way, I think the answer to that, should salaried pastors tithe of their income? Well, the priest did. Yeah, but that was under the law. It's a pattern, my friends. Abraham also gave a tithe, and he was pre-law. I don't know if he ever actually made it to law school, but he was pre-law, and he tithed, and we see that pattern, and we see the pattern again, and it's real easy to try and write it off because we don't want to have to deal with the truth. And I, I said to our staff this morning, you really have two reactions anytime you talk about money in church. You have those who feel encouraged because, yeah, yeah, I'm with you on this. And then you have those who are like, do they know? Do they know that I don't give anything? I, 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 I felt like that. I've told you before, sitting in the back row and the pastor started into a tithing sermon and I just go, <laughs> And I knew that everyone in the church knew that Rick didn't give a red cent. Horrible. Walk out of there, well, that was a lost Sunday. We have two reactions. I hope your reaction is just to hear the heart of God in all of this. Let me get more personal. Should any member of the royal priesthood of believers tithe off their gifts and blessings and provisions of God. I think the pattern is set. I'm not talking about, remember, you can't work for salvation, but you can work for the Lord. You, know, you don't tithe to get your salvation, but you can sure tithe for joy. And it's, it's, it's such a paradigm shift to come into that place. Should a Christian tithe? Only if you want to express thanksgiving, only if you want to give praise, only if you want peace and celebration. Psalm 50, verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Psalm 61, verse 8, I'll sing praise to your name forever that I may pay my vows day by day. Nahum, chapter 1, verse 15, behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace, Celebrate your feast, O Judah. And here comes the announcement of peace. Pay your vows. You want peace? You want financial freedom in this world? I'll tell you where it starts, tithing. It's one man's opinion, but I think we see the pattern here. And again, some will protest. Anytime you talk about this, some say we're not under law. My friends, I am not talking about Torah law right now. I'm talking about trust. Because it's trust in the Lord that must undergird all tithes and offerings and gifts that we make as his followers. We do it because we trust that he's gonna take care of it. I can't afford 10% less of my income. Can he? My father who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and by the way, every in and out, I'm convinced of it. He owns it all. It has always been the point of the tithe. What has? Trust. Tithing is trusting, trusting is tithing. It, it, it's, it's so wrapped up together. From the Israelite to the Aaronite to the Levite to the Christianite, tithing is trusting. And by the way, based on the last verse, how did a priest profane the offerings from the people? By not giving his own offering from it. God is so serious about this. He said, listen, the people are gonna give you their tithe. If you don't tithe the best from it, you profane their offering. You make their gift a profanity before me. By the way, following this pattern, I ask another question. 
should not a church, at minimum, should not a church fellowship tithe from the offerings of its fellowship? And we do. I don't know where every church is at with that, but we start at the beginning at the bridge. It's not to pat ourselves on the back, but I believe that the generosity and the blessings we've experienced and received as a church fellowship goes right back to a decision that the first 10% of everything that comes in goes out to missions. We started there. And through the years, that's been a really interesting journey to watch. We give 20% right now. And when, when, when the, the finances go out to cover the, the commitments we have to the 45 missionaries that we support, you know what's happening right now? We got more than we need. So Michael Adelot at Agape Refuge is right now getting the extra to finish building the school for the kids in Ghana. And when that's done, there's some other things coming. We don't even know what, but God's gonna say, hey, hey, you have $11,000 extra, which by the way, we did last month, praise the Lord. And I'm not talking $11,000 extra in the tithe. I'm talking there was $11,000 extra out of the 20% that goes out from giving here. What do you do with that? We give it away. We could refurbish, refurbish the pastor's office, but you know, I tried, but no one looked. No, it's not ours, it's his, the first and best. Give it away, and God blesses that, and he loves it. He, our generosity, I'm telling you, it stirs him up. He loves when his people are generous, and it just makes him want to be all the more generous. And by the way, the greater our investment in the kingdom, the greater our return. And we experience that right now. And by the way, in his return, I want to hear Jesus say this thing. What's going on here? I told him I hate these things. I hate him. John, I hate this thing. Just, man, give me a Bible and a hillside on the Galilee, and let's just be done with this. Okay. How's that? Better? <laughs> um, where was I? I want to hear Jesus say in his return, more than anything else, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear. That's, that's what we're to hear. This thing is really messed up. Hang on. I'm really not trying to make a show out of this, man. I'm just, I hate these things. <laughs> okay, so that's chapter 18. Just give me, you know, one more chapter. I'll keep going on this. This is so amazing. Chapter 19, God to continue resetting his people, the Lord is now gonna establish, listen to this, the only offering not commanded at Mount Sinai. Every other offering, we saw it in Leviticus, all commanded at Mount Sinai, but now they're out in the wilderness. This is after the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea, after they failed to go into the land, after the rebellion of Korah, after all the mess of stuff, God's hitting the reset button, and he says, by the way, I have one more offering for you. What? Yeah, one more. A special one, an unusual sacrifice because this one is more about the residual than the sacrifice itself. It's about the ashes. Watch this, verse one. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, this is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded saying, speak to the sons of Israel that they may bring you an unblemished red heifer in which has no defect and on which a yoke has never been placed. So he's enacting a new law Dealing specifically with, listen, defilement brought on by death. That's how it works, by the way. In case you weren't sure, defilement brings death, which brings defilement, which brings death. 
which brings defilement. The two are interrelated. And God, in the law, and we've already seen this, you touch a dead body, you're unclean. You're defiled. And death is defilement. The wages of sin, Romans 6.23, is death. 1 Corinthians 15.56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And remember what the people cried out at the end of chapter 17? Look back there, verse 12. Behold, we perish, we're dying, we're all dying. Everyone who comes near, who comes near the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Are we to perish completely? We're all dying, they cried, and they were right. They were absolutely right. Everyone of that first generation out of Egypt was gonna die in the wilderness. We're all dying. Yes, they were. But God also said, and this has to balance it out, Ezekiel 18, 32, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Therefore, repent and live. I don't want you to die. This is not my plan for you to die. I'm not excited about you dying. And get this, over the next 38 years of wilderness wandering, we can estimate some 1.2 million Israelites will die. Looking at the number of men, the 685,000 plus that were counted up, looking at that number, considering the the women as well, of that first generation, about 1.2 million people are gonna die in the wilderness. That averages to 85 people a day. Think about the funerals. Think about the loss of life. Now, it wouldn't be 85 a day, obviously, and there were gonna be some plagues where a whole lot of people die all at once. So you might have a reprieve a week or so where it's only, you know, 72 a day. (laughs) But death was going to be their reality in the wilderness as it is ours. So God gives them an offering to deal with it. And listen to it. I'm just gonna read the chapter through and come back and make some comments about it. Verse three. You shall give it, that is this red heifer, to Eleazar the priest, and it shall be brought outside the camp. It's the only offering offered up outside the camp and be slaughtered in his presence. Next, Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, seven times. And then the heifer shall be burned in his sight, its hide and its flesh and its blood, only offering where the blood is burned by the way, with its refuse, which is talking about what's in its intestines and its intestinal goo, all that shall be burned. Verse six, the high priest then, or the priest, Eliezer, shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast it into the midst of the burning heifer. And the priest shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward come into the camp, but the priest shall be unclean until evening. Even taking part in this red heifer offering made him unclean. Interesting. The one who burns it shall also wash his clothes in water and bathe in his his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. Now a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep it as water to remove impurity. It is purification from sin. So, So there's the offering. Listen to how this plays out. uh, Verse 11, the one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. We already know this. That one shall purify himself from the uncleanness. How? With the water. What water? The water with the ashes of the red heifer, that mixture, okay? 
on the third and on the seventh day, and then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died and does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from Israel because the water of, for impurity was not sprinkled on him. He shall be unclean, and his uncleanness is still on him. This is the law. When a man dies in a tent, everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. Think about this. I mean, with the average of 85 a day, <laughs> this is constant uncleanness. They gotta deal with this stuff. There's gotta be a removal of the defilement or the tabernacle can't stand and the people can't survive. Verse 14, this is the law when a man, I did that one. Verse 15, every open vessel which has no covering tied down on it shall be unclean. That's because unclean stuff can get in there. Also, anyone who is in the open field touches one who has been slain with a sword or has died naturally, or a human bone or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. And then for the unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the burnt purification from sin and flowing water shall be added to them in a vessel. So they gotta get water, you know, like river water, fresh water, flowing water. They mix it with the ashes of the red heifer. They put it in a vessel. A clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water because hyssop is thick and branchy and it actually holds water. It's kind of spongy. And so they could take that and they sprinkle it on the tent, that's on the tent of meeting, and on all the furnishings and on the one, the persons who were there and, and, well, actually, no, not the tent of meeting. We're talking about the tent of the person who died. And the one who touched the bone or the one slain or the one dying naturally or the grave. And then the clean person shall sprinkle on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day, he shall purify him from uncleanness and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and shall be clean by evening. But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself from uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly because he was defiled or he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water for impurity has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. So it shall be a perpetual statute for them, and he who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes, and he who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean until evening. That's so interesting to me. Furthermore, anything that the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. Okay, let's make some sense of this. And there's a whole lot here that you can go back and study and think through that we won't even touch tonight. The ash of the red heifer, they're used to mix with that flowing water and it's called the water for impurity, the me-nidah. Me-nidah, keep that in mind, me-nidah, N-I-D-D-A-H, if you wanna spell it out, me-nidah. It's used, water for impurity, as a rite of sprinkling for purification, as we read, purifying the tabernacle from death that happens anywhere near, purifying the person defiled by a corpse or contact with death or any kind of dead thing, purifying the tent of the one who's been unclean. It's, it's shaken. It's used for these purification ideas. Note three big ideas. Number one, the red heifer obviously, practically portrays Jesus. Undeniably. And I'll just throw these at you. It was to be unblemished with no defect. First Peter 1.19, Peter calls Jesus a lamb unblemished and spotless. The red heifer had to give off a, a blood red hue. And that's, that's unique among heifers. You don't often see that. The blood red, not, not just brown, it has to have a reddish 
tinge to its, its whole look. Had to give off a blood red hue. In fact, the, the, the word red there is aduma, which comes from the Hebrew word adom, Adam, which, we all, which you know, means red. It's like the red of the earth. It's, the, it's like red dirt. And aduma means ruddy or reddish. So it has to give off this hue. Peter also says, you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. So the blood red heifer obviously portrays blood, a precious blood, as of, Peter says, a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Third note that the, the red heifer on which, it, it has to be a red heifer on which a yoke has never been laid. So this is still portraying Jesus. It's unblemished without defect. It gives off a blood red hue. It's, it's on which a yoke has never been laid. How's that Christ-like? Jesus was never manipulated by man. Jesus was never driven. Jesus was never worked by the people around him. He was always completely in charge. When Peter tried to work him, tried to deter him as if by a yoke from his path. You remember what Jesus said to him? Get behind me, Satan, Matthew 16, 23. You're a stumbling block to me. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. You're trying to drive me. It's not gonna work, Pete. When Pilate said, John 19, verse 10, do you not know I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? And Jesus said, you have no authority over me unless it was given you from above. Jesus was never driven. He was never manipulated. A yoke was never laid on him by humanity. And the red heifer is the only sacrifice that was carried out outside the camp. Not in the court of the tent of meeting, but outside of the camp. John 19, 17, they took Jesus, therefore, he went out bearing his own cross to the place called Golgotha. Place of the skull, in Hebrew, Golgotha. Golgotha was outside the city, outside the horse gate, Today, it's the Damascus Gate. It's on the north side of the Temple Mount. It's the northern outskirts of the city of Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus was crucified. The Hebrew pastor puts a point on it. He says, therefore, Jesus also, Hebrews 13, 12, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate. So let's go out to him, outside the camp, doing what? Listen, bearing his reproach. That's what the royal priesthood does. We bear the guilt. We bear even the reproach of Christ. We'll wear that with him? Absolutely. It's another gift that we get to bear as his priests, the reproach poured on Jesus. This is also the only sacrifice, note this, not performed by the priest. Wait, what? No, no. It says, Eliezer, verse four, shall take some of its blood with his finger and, yeah, he takes some of the blood, one sacrifice. Yeah, but no, wait. No, verse three, you gave it to Eliezer the priest and it shall be brought outside the camp and be slaughtered in his presence. Right, in his presence, but not by him. How's that like Jesus? Jesus was slaughtered, as it were, not by Caiaphas, but in the presence of the high priest. Caiaphas was there, but the killing was carried out by the Romans. And in the same way with the red heifer, Eliezer was there, or the high priest, whoever it would be at the time, would be there, but he doesn't do the killing. Someone else does the killing. He just stood by and watched as Caiaphas would do. The red heifer also was burned in totality 
Everything about the red heifer, flesh, meat, innards, blood, all of it, the whole thing went up in smoke in the same way Jesus was consumed by the wrath of God, completely. Took it all on himself. There's none left. For those of you who want to go to purgatory, there's nothing left for you to pay for, which is why there's no purgatory. That's, that's, a, that's a man-made thing. You don't go pay the extra for what Jesus couldn't cover. He took it all, the full weight of the wrath of God, and he was burned, if you will, in totality, just like the red heifer was. Romans 5, 9, Jesus, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The red heifer, furthermore, and I'm trying to move quickly here, but it the ashes were a mix of things that we've seen before already. We've seen this, the cedar wood, the scarlet, remember, and the hyssop, which were all now dropped into this burning red heifer, and they would become part of the ashes. That's really an interesting combination. Cedar wood reminds us of the cross. There are those who think the cross probably was built of cedar. It was used all over the land at the time, and perhaps cedar wood, the cross, the scarlet, Picture of his blood, the hyssop, cleansing. Psalm 51, 7, David cries out, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. You gotta have a loofah at home. Hyssop would be an ancient loofah. You could use it for that because again, it it would hold moisture and you could scrub the back with it. We got this loofah on the end of a long stick. Oh, sorry, it's good stuff. It's almost as good as an In-N-Out burger saying hyssop hyssop listen it was the plant used by the Israelites to paint the blood on the lintel and the doorpost hyssop hyssop also it's it's such a picture of Jesus because in John 19 28 after this Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture said I am thirsty He didn't say I'm thirsty because he was weak and thirsty. He said it to fulfill the scripture. What scripture? Purify me with hyssop. What what scripture? How about this one right here? The red heifer required hyssop in the burning as a part of it. So a jar full of sour wine was standing there, and they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth, fulfilling prophecy. And then Jesus received the sour wine and said, to Talus die. It's finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, and all of this, my friends, and there's more to it, and you can just kind of pick it through and look for Jesus in Numbers 19 and be amazed because he's all over the place. But what's interesting and kind of curious to me about this is it's an amazing practical picture of Christ the Son. Why is it a heifer? A, a female, it's a cow. Why all the other sacrifices? I mean, you could you could kind of have male or female, but primarily male and, and especially Passover had to be a spotless male lamb. This one is specifically. In fact, the second thing to note is not only uh, practically a picture of Jesus, but this one is peculiarly female. The red heifer offering. It's the only offering of all the offerings that is exclusively a feminine animal, a cow. The word heifer is para, and it literally means a young cow. So we're talking about a cow. It can't be a calf. It has to be at least two or three years old, but it's young. So this red heifer, this female cow, how can it speak of Jesus? Christ the Son, the Son of God. 
A lot of interesting things have been said about this, even by some pastors that I, that I highly regard. Um, but it's interesting because you can, you can easily kind of get devotional and, and maybe miss, I think, what the scriptures are saying. A lot has been said. But the best commentary on the Bible is what? The Bible. So what does the Bible say about the red heifer? Check this out. Hosea chapter 4, verse 16. Israel is stubborn like a stubborn heifer. Can the Lord now pasture them like a lamb in a large field? They're a heifer. So the red heifer is a picture of Israel. Hosea 10, verse 11. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh, but I will come over her fair neck with a yoke. I'll harness Ephraim. Judah will plow. Jacob will harrow for himself. Israel is compared to a heifer. We have that picture in Scripture, and here the red heifer. And and if it so beautifully in all these ways portrays Jesus, but it's still female. Listen, Jesus is the ideal of Israel. He's the perfect Jew. I've always loved this about Jesus. You want to look at the ultimate Jewish person, perfect in the law, perfect in the keeping of the commandments, exacting in following the heart and intent of God. It's Jesus. He is the perfect Jew. And you know what that means? It means male or female, he's the perfect example. Male or female, he is the ideal man and woman. By the way, there really isn't any other option biblically. No matter how many types and genders we think, we come up with in our brilliance and our deep, amazing human wisdom, my friends, there's male and female. That's how God created us. The Bible is clear on that. People say, Jesus never talked about that. Really? He said, have you not heard? In the beginning, he created them, male and female. Absolutely clear. But sometimes I'll have sisters come to me and go, I'm just not sure who my example should be. You know, should it be Mary? Should it be, you know, maybe Deborah? Should it be one of the other, Joanna or? No, no, your example is Jesus. He's a man. He's the perfect human. He is the ideal Israelite. He is your, sisters, he's the one you look like. You're not taught to, taught to be Mary-like. You're taught to be Christ-like. So he, he, and that's why I love the red heifer because this is, a, this is a female offering and it's almost as if God is saying, not only is the ideal Israel, but, and this is, you know, stepping a little bit beyond Bible commentary, but it's almost as if God's saying, look, I'm choosing a red heifer just to say, ladies, he's got you. As with the men, the sacrifice is for man and woman. And Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13, the pastor said, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, and he's talking about the red heifer sacrifice, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So again, the red heifer offering was for the express purpose of purification. Man, woman, either way, the red heifer sacrifice pictures the purification of Jesus, who Paul said, Titus 2.14, gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Last thing to note, it's a picture of Jesus practically in in so many ways. And the the red heifer is peculiarly, it's hard to say that word, 
peculiarly female. And finally, the red heifer is potently prophetic. How so? In the roughly 1,500 years from Moses to Jesus, only six red heifers were offered. This is from Jewish tradition and, and, you know, history laid down and and shared over time. But six red heifers over all that 1,500 years were offered up. And, And they didn't need much. All they needed was a pinch, you know, to put in the water and mix it up. And you had your mixture. It wasn't like you had to have some big amount. So they take the ashes of the very first red heifer, and this is what they did. They set a little bit aside. And as they got down to the end of that, they sacrificed another red heifer, number two, and they mixed the original ashes in with the new. So you could say, technically, those six red heifers are all one. It all goes all the way back to the very first red heifer sacrifice. They just kept mixing in the ashes of the previous to the new, kept it going all this time, new uh, perpetual red heifer offering. So just six of them. Six is the number of man. That's interesting to me. But when Jerusalem fell in A.D. 70, the ashes of the red heifer were lost, as so much was lost. Rabbinical tradition says that those ashes, like so many things, were hidden away. And in fact, there are some archaeologists, there's one who came out several years ago and said it's in Cave 3 of Qumran. I know it's there. It's got to be there. Cave 3 of that cave, but okay. One of the foremost scholars uh, in archaeology and of the Temple Mount is an archaeologist um, I've mentioned, in fact, we talk about him on our Israel trip, called Asher Kaufman. Asher Kaufman is one who actually, well, that's another story. I can't tell it right now. Asher Kaufman. He's just a brilliant scholar, longtime scholar on the Temple Mount and everything surrounding it. And he is absolutely certain, and he's written this, he's certain that the ashes of the red heifer are contained, concealed in a subterranean cistern on the Mount of Olives. Why there, Asher? Because the Mount of Olives was once called by the Jewish people the Mount of Anointment. Because on the Mount of Olives was where they did the red heifer sacrifice. After they got in from the wilderness, the next red heifer sacrifice was on the Mount of Olives. And that's where they did it, outside the city. They would offer up the red heifer and keep the ashes there. And that's what Asher Coffin says. That's where the red heifer was burned. There's a Greek Orthodox church there. Those of you who have been, you may recall, we stop off at the Greek Orthodox. We kind of go into that little area. It's a garden area, and we can look across to the Temple Mount, and sometimes we do teaching there. And that Greek Orthodox area, they're pretty uptight. Nowadays, you actually have to have, you know, you have to apply to be able to go in there for five minutes. And, and the bishop of that Greek Orthodox church will not allow any archaeological work to be done under his church. And that's where they think it is. So the people of the Temple Mount Institute, or the Temple Institute, which is something you hear about a lot in Israel, but they're in the news, and they're the ones, they want to build the next temple, and they're all excited about this, and they're looking for the ashes of the red heifer, and they want those ashes bad. Why? You have to have it. Here's the RH factor, red heifer. The prophetic red heifer factor is that a new temple can be erected but cannot be used until you have the ashes of the red heifer. So you have to have those ashes because you have to be able to purify the temple from all defilement. Think about all the workers who are going to work on building the next temple. Any one of them touches anything dead, has anything to do with anything dead, and they go to work, boom, defiled. You can't even risk it. You have to have the ashes of the red heifer. You have to have the water of impurity. You have to be able to sprinkle that seven times on the temple, or you have no temple. 
which is why many believe, and the Temple Institute is at the forefront of this, that the appearance of a true and spotless red heifer today will usher in the Messianic kingdom from a Jewish perspective. A lot of us on the Christian side are going, sounds good to me. Man, let's find that cow. <laughs> the red, but it has to be perfect. They find one white hair on that red heifer, it's out. Can't use it. It has to be a flawless, completely red cow. But in its coming, Jewish people believe the kingdom age is right behind. Zechariah chapter 13, verse one. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. That word impurity is lenida. The water of impurity is manida. It's the same idea. The fountain open for impurity is for the impurity and defilement of death. A fountain's gonna be open. What's interesting in the prophetic about the ashes of the red heifer or a, a red heifer itself is Islam believes it too. I actually looked it up, read it in the Quran. Rick, you read the Quran? Not, not for any other reason than just to see, yeah, there it is. In the second book of the Quran, the, the book is called Al-Baqarah, which sounds kind of cool, right? Al-Baqarah, ooh, that sounds holy. What does it mean? The cow. Their second book is called The Cow. And it tells a botched version of Numbers 19. You know, messed up. And that, that's, that's what the Quran does. And I, you know, I was gonna say I don't mean an offense, but maybe I do mean just a little bit of offense. Because I am not, I, I've said this before, I'm not anti-Muslim, but I am anti-Islam because it is a religion that damns. It is a religion that if followed will not get you to the Father. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. There's only one way. So any other way is a detour that will take you off path and not to Jesus. That understood, the Quran tells this bot story. And so many of the stories in the Hebrew scriptures that happened 2,100, 2,200 years before Muhammad comes along and starts doing his thing, it just messes them all up. All of the Hebrew stories that are recounted in the Quran are recounted wrong. And this is one of them. In fact, it's not even a red cow they're talking about. It's got to be a yellow cow. Good luck with that one. I mean, get me a highlighter and maybe we can make something happen. But imams still teach that the nation that discovers the ashes of the heifer will rule the world. So you got Jews, conservative, orthodox, ultra-orthodox, looking for the ashes of the red heifer or looking for a new, the next red heifer that they can sacrifice. You got Muslims going, yeah, we gotta get our hands on that because the ones who do rule the world. Now, some of you may say, well, Rick, that's in the Quran. You believe the Quran is prophetic? No, I believe it's demonic. And I believe that Satan knows the word of God and uses it, you know, for his purposes. He knows that when a spotless red heifer comes on the scene, his dominion, his domination will soon be over. So he uses that. By the way, the, the phrase here, water for impurity, da. And I've pointed out now a couple of times, literally means, and you might want to write this down, water for impurity, it's the water of bleeding. The water of filth. It's even the water of menstruation. Now what's so weird about this to me, it's such a bizarre dynamic that this water for impurity, for bleeding, for filth, 
itself, if you touch it, causes impurity. Even though if it's sprinkled on you, it makes you clean. But if you're sprinkling it and it gets on you as the clean person sprinkling it, you're unclean until evening. It's, it's, it's such a strange twist here. It, it cleanses the one on whom it's sprinkled, but it makes the one who sprinkles unclean. Well, why? Because these are still cow ashes. They're not, they're not holy. They can't purify. All they can do is symbolize purity, which is why we started with the fact that this whole thing looks like Jesus because they symbolize the real purification of the pure and spotless Arneon, the little lamb slain, Jesus Christ, the ideal of Israel. We know, 1 John 3 verse 2 tells us that when he appears, we'll be like him because we will see him just as he is and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So tonight, we've gone from holy gifts to holy cows. (laughs) in the wilderness. This is all wilderness teaching, and it's all part of that reset, but listen, the next chapter will open and close with death. Verse one of chapter 20, Miriam dies. The last verses of chapter 20, Aaron dies. The first deaths that will follow this purification for the defilement of death. Because again, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, but... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So out here in the wilderness, people do wander hopelessly. People are blind. Death is the greatest fear. It is the greatest threat. That's that's the whole pandemic, by the way. That's the vaccination issue and the mask issue and everything else comes down to one thing, fear of death. That's all it is. And it's going on right now in the wilderness of this world, but we are a royal priesthood. Priests of God, of of Christ Jesus, being trained and prepared for that, and we've been given the gospel of his grace to give, which brings life. Amen? Well, Father, we thank you for walking us through these chapters. And I, I still feel like there's so much here, Lord, that we've only begun to scratch and talk about, but... These are precious things. So Holy Father, I just pray to you tonight that you'll seal our understanding, whether it's the generosity and the joy of of giving, tithing off the tithe and, and all that you've blessed us with, or Lord, the purification that is so required because death defiles and only Jesus gives life. Lord, these are profound things to to be thinking about. I pray that you help us at the end of this day just to remember one thing in particular that we have been given grace upon grace upon grace. In Jesus' name, amen.